Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Jim Scott. Jim is the Director of Design Innovation at Respect where he specializes in innovating mission-critical solutions that enhance client success. Over the years, I've enjoyed multiple collaborations with Jim, bringing design sprint methods in the public sector organizations with natural resource-oriented missions. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hey, Douglas. Great to be with you. So, Jim, let's get started just hearing a little bit about like how you found your way to being a design innovation director at respect like how do you, how did you start off your career that landed you in this kind of really interesting role to support innovation through a design lens well the origin i guess goes way back i'm one of those lucky people i would say that um, had an idea about what i wanted to do with my i guess i'd call it business life at a very young age so basically high school and uh, the opportunity came about because of I have, uh, I've had the ability to go spend a lot of time in nature and outdoors and farms and all. And I always was exposed to kind of the wonder of the environment. And so when I began to explore what I might do to apply my interest in that topic, I actually came across uh, a uh, articles in the Washington Post by the Dean of the School of Environmental Design at the University of Georgia who talked about landscape architecture as a profession. And I realized you could actually get a job thinking and learning about the environment in a creative way and that there was a pathway to a profession that was laid out for that. So I applied to a couple, three schools, but that that message from that dean just rang very deeply with me. So I said, I'm just going to go there and go to that program. So that's that's how I got uh, oriented to design as a as a concept but it really wasn't until I arrived there that I was fortunately exposed to a diversity of, of, of thought and practice by landscape architects, architects, engineers, artists, other types of people. So I was fortunate that I, I had an appreciation, was given an appreciation for design as a very broad kind of uh, area for creativity, solving problems, understanding the environment, and, and how to work with people. It's really fascinating, this notion of learning to appreciate diversity and and how it can be just a fountain of kind of emerging ideas. And, you know, while the process can often serve us, if we don't have that foundation of diversity of thought, we can often be stifled or miss the bigger picture. So it's really interesting that, uh, 
you know, some of the early formative days for you made that real crystal clear? Well, one thing I, I will say is I was lucky because my parents brought me up with as minimal exposure to what prejudice would be as possible. Uh, I was a very privileged young man growing up in Northern Virginia, a pretty, pretty privileged geography. But um, I had a, a very, I would call it progressive uh, uh household that I was brought up in where life was a spectrum of opportunities and choices and realities, both good and bad. And the people that I would encounter uh, through that that environment were very, very positive. So um, that I, I, I owe all that to my, my parents. So coming back to the schooling and the lessons you learned in design, were there any memories that you have that were kind of pivotal as far as understanding some of the underpinning, I guess, maybe philosophies or maybe structural or process elements that really make design work? Yeah, there's a few things. So one was just the way that the structure of the classes were, was very unusual, very much a critique-oriented studio environment where all the, it was small classes, uh, people were given a design problem, there was some introduction by the professor, whatever the topic was, uh, but then you had to go create your own thing and then uh, you presented it to the group and you had to get up and present why it was uh, achieving whatever the problem statement was and you had to provide a, a basis and a logic for it and you had to defend it. And um, that was – it was a quite a liberating approach because the, the I can recall instances where things I put up on the wall were very crude and – but uh, – you know, not refined as in terms of their execution, but I had thought about them a lot, and and I was appreciative of of professors that would in those cases say, you know, you've you've been able to address the problem well, and as well as other people who were a lot more talented than I was, who had beautiful designs on the wall, but there was an appreciation for the thinking that went behind the reasoning of of what uh, what I came up with. So that was that was liberating at that point, and then there was a lot of specific exercises. Uh, that were very enlightening. Uh, we had, and a lot of that practice is in today where, you know, you learn, I had a professor named Mike Wall who introduced what he called the the wide chain wall. So everything was why. And so we went through that whole exercise that really caused everyone to think more deeply about, you know, those pursuit of those answers. So that was all good. But even I had a professor who was a painter uh, who went to the University of Pennsylvania's uh, graduate school of design there. And we go out on these uh, field trips and do studies that he, one of the exor exercises was called macro to micro. So we'd go out into a field and sketch a landscape, and we would go halfway to the subject of that landscape and sketch it again. And then we'd go further and further. So each time we did a sketch, we had more detail what was going on. So that whole experience taught us the concept of scale and the concept of how at the deepest levels of details, you know, down to actually putting your face staring into the ground and looking at pine needles in a pine forest, the textures, the, the, the colors, the, the, uh, you know, all of the things that made up that, that sketch that you were doing could be tied back to the macro scale of when you saw that from a distance. So that whole macro to micro micro thinking was, I thought, useful uh, as I've been able to approach things as a professional. You know, it kind of reminds me of the importance of observation and how often our, our thoughts, our ambitions, our goals, our tasks, our to-dos get in the way of taking a moment to observe. And I was reminded of this I, over the weekend, actually. I had a friend over who's an artist and 
there's a, a bug on the outside of my door. My door is a, a glass door, and there is a Katie did. Any of you Texans will know what a Katie did is. Anyone else can Google it. And it was kind of hanging out on the exterior glass, but you could kind of see its underbelly. You know, so we had a really interesting little view of this this crazy insect. And my artist friend was checking it out, and he said, "Check out his feet." And I looked really close at his feet, and the feet of a katydid is quite impressive. It's like it looks like a fractal, and I never noticed this before. Just you know, an artist, someone who's used to like really dissecting things and capturing the essence of what things are, you know, he, he went straight into like, let me examine this thing. And so I loved your story about the macro to micro because these observations matter. And, you know, especially in a design sprint and other workshops, we're sharing analogous inspiration. Well, if you're not observing things, then you can't, you can't make that move. You're not going to have examples in your back pocket to pull out because if you haven't been observing, then you, you, there's nothing to remember to share. Yeah, that's, that's, that's uh, very true. And I find it today, even in sort of reviewing the kinds of design sprint processes or, or design projects that I get involved in. And that's something I always think about and try to pursue, which is does the, does the, whether it's user experience or the user interface that someone has prototyped or built, you know, does it really reflect the details behind the, the thinking and the, uh, the, even the practices of those of the components that build that thing from, from the ground up, from a, sort of the atomic level. Are those things expressed there as they should be to be holistically expressed at the top level? Mm, yeah, it's like it almost comes back to the fractal and feet, right? It's like yeah. the micro and the macro need to resemble each other and definitely at least there needs to be a thread of connecting them. Absolutely. Well, you brought up another term that is uh, another area that is that I was exposed to in school, which is is the essence. And that was that's another thing that I, I find somewhat intermittent in terms of just regular discussion these days around design is you know design is always as I have experienced it recently, it's it's a it's an artifact, it's a thing. I believe it's also a process. And of course there's many different definitions, but I find that there's not a a strong tie to people expressing and trying to describe the essence of the problem. There's a way to course prototype almost anything and produce a, a product, uh, but to ask that question is what is the essence of the problem we're trying to solve here? That, that's even beyond just what are the user needs. There's something deeper there, and I think that's somewhat been lost. I agree, and I, I think you can even take that this notion of essence and apply it almost to anything, right? Because we could say what is the essence of this prototype we're building, and we can't articulate that unless we understand what we're trying to, what questions we're trying to answer. Because <laughs> otherwise it might become amorphous and it might it might go down some strange paths that are unnecessary. Well, and I think if you achieve it to a higher degree, there doesn't need an explanation. It just, it is. And you don't need to talk about it. It just, that it's, it's intuitive. It's, you know, it taps into some, you know, even... I would call them mystical ideas around, uh, you know, the human dimension of things. So uh, that's that's always something that's probably impossible to achieve, but it's always worth going after. You know, I think that's spot on. I want to come back to something that you mentioned a little bit earlier around how your professors appreciated the thought, the real kind of, I would say, fundamental design. And I think this is something that when that people struggle with a lot, 
whether it's we're asking them to sketch during a design sprint or we're asking them to be, I've heard so many people tell me, Oh, I'm not creative or I I can never be that creative. And you know, it is a muscle that requires some practice. Also, we had to give people permission and the courage to do it because a lot of people are afraid to do that stuff because it's kind of been beaten out of them since elementary school. And I think that's one of the reasons why they dubbed design. They put the thinking behind design to come up with the term design thinking to really point out that it's not just about drawing pretty pictures or moving the pixels around, that we really have to put deep thought into stuff and come up with concepts and solutions to really address the issue at hand in, in a meaningful way. And I think that's a really important distinction. And that's why some some people push back on design thinking because it's like, well, design is about thinking. So I'd love to hear you elaborate on that a little more um, just because you mentioned the professors appreciating that, this notion of going deeper. And it wasn't just about, you know, this how well it was executed from a, are your circles perfectly circled and are they shaded beautifully and all this. Well, some of that I think ties to uh, the design process as I was taught it, uh, which does go from, and it it, re- it reflects the, the modern approach, I think, to a degree where there's a question or a problem that needs to be solved and there is a, you know, a, uh, a commitment to try to understand that. And then there's a data collection uh, activity, trying to understand the phenomenon that you're dealing with. And then the first thing that we would do is come up with a conceptual design. So there, that begins to peel back into the underlying essence of things, uh, what those fundamental relationships are, how do they interact, uh, what are those uh, critical kinds of connections that are more important than others that really influence whatever it is you're trying to do. And then you go into a design development phase. Uh, but it's early on, You have, there are signals early on whether or not you're close to embracing and understanding the problem you're trying to solve or the thing you're trying to create. And that can be done. That's where I, I really love the the prototype outcome from the classic design sprint or the from the five-day design sprint because that you should be able to achieve the essence of that in five days. And sure, it's not a final product, but that to me is the signal that, of course, the validation process helps provide clues to but there should be something profound that comes through that process that is achievable in those five days. So that's why, you know, design isn't necessarily this long, complicated journey ultimately to have it executed in its most beautiful fashion. It, it, it's going to deserve the time and effort and thought that goes into it. But, but you should be able to capture that essence pretty, pretty early on. So the idea that in a design critique, you know, someone could basically do a, a napkin sketch and they should be able to have that withstand the kind of scrutiny and, uh, and challenge that, that someone from uh, another point of view might have to, to try to validate the original thinking around that. So, um, yeah, it's, I think that provides, it's kind of liberating that way to give people that sense of you can, you can come up with this idea and you don't have to be credentialed or have a bunch of experience, but if you have a a desire to understand the needs of the problem and how to address them. That's why it's very democratizing, I think, in this in this process. And that's what I've loved about the work that we've done together because we've, we've gone into into organizations that people clearly express that they they're a, a chemist or a or a watershed modeler, and they they never have even thought about being a designer, but in fact, they really are. Mm-hmm. If, if you really tap into what they're trying to do, so that's I think that's been part of the the fun of this stuff is to is to share the 
practice and the thought processes and how transportable they really are into different domains. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to see the folks that are highly trained in some field that's, you know, you would not necessarily associate with design. You know, they're mathematicians, hydrologists, you know, creating very complicated models. They're renowned in their field. And then they had the courage to come and say, you know, what we did in that week was provocative. It got me thinking differently. I'm going to come attend a training. So we've had folks, we've had PhDs come and attend training so that they could take this stuff back to their teams mm -hmm. and even in small, like little shifts in the way they work. And I think that's pretty profound. And, it, you know, it speaks to the something we were talking about in the pre-show chat around public sector in general and how they're starved for design, I think was your word. I often say underserved, <laughs> you know, they don't necessarily get all the attention. And I think to me, it's fascinating because on some levels it, it's more difficult because the gap's wider. So you gotta, you know, there's a, a larger gap to bridge, but when you do, it's so rewarding. And when it clicks, people are really appreciative because you've kind of presented a whole new way of working and a whole new way of thinking and created, opened up doors they never would have imagined. So anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts and even stories around some of this public sector work and how the work that you're doing in Respec or even some of the stuff we've done together has kind of created shifts for these some of these public sector folks. Yeah, so I, I've found that um, you know, there's always, always a useful, people find it useful sometimes to distinguish between public sector and private sector. I've had the privilege of working in the public sector uh, for a number of years to complement my private sector work. So I maybe I, I'm just kind of tuned into that that idea that there there's more similarities than there are differences. But the challenges and the commitment that people in the public sector have to provide service and to make a difference, you know, they're culturally ready to embrace creative ways to to make places and people and systems better. So I'd say that by and large is true. And and so there is a, a ripeness in terms of how ready they are, I think, to to open up, but there's always risk. There's always, whether it's institutional risk or bureaucratic risk or whatever it might be, there's a little bit of hesitancy there. And so that's where it has been extremely rewarding to show up, give, give somebody a contained experience that there's a cost on it. It's this amount of dollars. It's this amount of time. This is what you should, you should expect as the outcome. So it it kind of takes away that fear of the unknown, which is when you think about all the work that gets done, and particularly in the in the transformational technology era that we're in, and at least that's how it's generally categorized. There's a there's risk everywhere, and uh, so that's what I think has been shared with these client experiences is they they want to be operating differently. There's an expectation. It taps into their consumer social media world. They can bank online, but they can't fill out a form online. You know, so there's a certain amount of desire to bring what what they experience in, in these other domains. And, and why not make that a part of, of how public service can be delivered? And I think that's the, the really cool thing about today's digital technologies is those, those inertias and, and barriers to making that come true are diminishing. It's it's now possible to show up with uh, this practice and actually go and take these digital assets and turn them into a solution that is achievable for a budget that's 
going to be reasonable. It's going to fit into the same paradigm that it, that it would need to. Uh, so that's kind of the, the big level, I think, as far as people are ready for it. And there is a, there's that challenge to how do we deliver better services? And so a cre- it's a creative process. So I think we've been able to deliver that experience for them. And I had, there was one experience that you and I were involved in uh, dealing with a executive director of a natural resource agency in the Midwest. And you know, there was some skepticism around what we were doing. And there was, it was a, I would call it a, a well-valued proposition, but it was out of the norm for them. That's the hard part, right? How do you get people to actually commit public dollars, the public trust to doing something differently that has a need for generating a tangible outcome that's going to deliver that value? So at the end of that whole experience, the executive director comes up to me, pulls me aside and says, you know, I knew this was going to work, but I didn't realize how you were going to able to get my five different groups through their organizational reinforcements operate differently. And now you have broken down all of their, all of their methods and, and, and cultural barriers, and you got them to work together so, so easily, so effortlessly to come up with this composite solution, because now they understand what each other party needs and why they need it. So now there's this, this shared empathy. So it's beyond just breaking down silos. It's really creating another level of empathy across organizations. So the people who aren't normally uh, you know, conditioned to understand those people down the hall or over in the other building. Now they're now they're forced into into coming to grips with that in a very positive way and go, wow! I, if I if this makes my job better, can it make their job better? And then it creates that dual reinforcement, which it'll be interesting to go back in time and, and see how much of that has lasted. Which is an open question in many of these experiences. Is we get a lot of positive around the outcome of these design sprints and and what we implement, uh, the big test is what's it going to be like five years, 10 years from now? How much of that can can persist through the organization through time? That's to be a, that's a big challenge. Yeah, there's a lot of inertia and things tend to regress to the mean, if you will. Yep. I think the organizations that are most successful are the ones that want to invest in the long haul and honestly, it's generally tied to leadership's ability to realize that these ways of working aren't the risky proposition, that the risk is another phenomenon that's coming at them. Because, you know, the more and more complex things get, right, yes. then the risk just keeps coming at us. And these approaches are de-risking mechanisms, the leaders that are starting to realize that and embrace that are the ones that are starting to not only work in this way, but also bring in coaching, bring in extra touch points where they can stay sharp. Because at the end of the day, it's one thing when you have an outside facilitator come in and run something like this and light the light bulbs off and get everyone really aligned, but then malalignment creeps in, collaborative dysfunction creeps in. And, and when people are faced with scenarios that are a little bit different, they're like, well, how do I address this? How does this model fit into this situation? And that's where having a coach or, or, or someone to guide you. At Cisco, not public sector, but a great example of this, they created something they called the Change Lab because they're wanting to change the way they work. And so Change Lab is a weekly little community practice around these new techniques and they get together and coach each other. It's uh, it's a peer-led kind of function. And they brought us in, you know, periodically to to be guests in Change Lab to help, you know, mentor and coach 
just so that the focus stays there. So I think to your point, it's sort of like a garden. You know, if we go in and work on the garden, we can get it in great shape. If we leave it for a couple of years, it's not going to necessarily be the results we might be looking for. So it does require some tending and some forethought in how to do that. Yeah, I think that really ties into the, um, I I need to embrace that more and try to help people understand the, you know, this is a, it is beyond just a one-time experience that that creates and delivers this prototype and all the other things that come up, you know, downstream of that. But, you know, there, I think you, you hit it well when you talk about it's the, it's a leadership responsibility and finding those leaders who, who can uh, embrace this and make it part of the organizational long-term. And that can even flow into services that tend to be, we tend to go into projects that have a very specific kind of need and we solve that problem. And I think what we're talking about here is organizations need to create an opportunity for these uh, renewal kinds of investments made around the thinking, the practice, the cultural validation of of this approach, as it would need to change over time anyway. So I don't know, I don't know how that gets institutional institutionally uh, accepted or adopted. But you know, there's all kinds of getting back to the public sector. There's all kinds of training budgets that that agencies maintain for individual kinds of certifications and things. And I think that's where this is an area that any organization probably should consider or think about how can we look at at collaborative kinds of investments that are going to reinforce and strengthen this mission that we're now on to help build and bring this value. Because there are all kinds of uh, parameters to now consider. If we can demonstrate that it does de-risk our work, uh, it takes away uncertainty. It creates all these other things. Those need to be uh, you know, almost performance indicators that say this is why we do this, and give the le- give leadership a very clear s- story to say this is why we make these investments because they're doing the following things. So it, you know, even ultimately needs to go into a, into a procurement, you know, easy button for people to say we need more of this stuff. We need this is what we need this this formula, these combinations, and this is the sort of the annual checkup or whatever the whatever that long term strategy is. But I think there is a, an opportunity to go beyond these design sprints as as experiments, as validations, and to the degree that they provide that value and demonstrate it, then how you had that conversation about making it part of a longer term strategy for an organization regardless of the detail of kinds of projects you do is, is a good thing to pursue. 100%. You know, and it comes back to your point around, you know, these groups often require interdisciplinary cross-organization collaboration, right? And that's quite a bit different than cross-functional. You know, in a company where we're talking about bringing a cross-functional team together, there might be some inertia on those teams around how their team leader or their department head has given them direction, guidance, and like what their incentives and focus are. And that has to be shifted. But when you're talking about different governmental or NGO or, you know, local federal organizations that have different regulations, different budgetary concerns, you know, they're, they're trying to protect their, their situation you know, uh, and they're coming into this collaboration thinking, well, like, how much can I really give, right? And so they're they're sizing up everything through this lens of what's going to be that impact to us. And so I think, you know, these structured design processes where we do 
explore the auto, the possible, and what's the conceptual design before we worry too much about like things like impact and how who, who's going to pay for this, et cetera. It really gets past that collaborative dysfunction where everyone's sizing each other up and thinking about, well, how's this going to impact me? And it's more about like, how can we best serve the community or best serve the outcomes we're seeking? And then we can, we can, we can figure out how to make it work later. And so, um, anyway, I, I think that everything you're, you're mentioning makes a lot of sense and it's, um, it underpins, the need for this kind of work in public sector, especially anything that might be cross sector or cross like organization. Well, that, that's the real challenge. I mean, I think the, I don't want to say it's easy, but you know, doing presenting the opportunities around the design projects that I've done, I would, I, don't, I won't call it easy, but that's just, that's just the scratching the surface. The, the reason we do these things is for a higher purpose, I think, and for a, a desire to see everything become better. And we have to begin to find maybe more efficient ways or more effective ways to instill these values, these principles, and 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 have them tested and validated back to us as to whether they're going to take hold or not. And then if they erode or get changed or knocked off course, how do we adapt to keep them on track and, and provide that long-term value. So that's that's the area that uh, I like to think about because it's hard and it's not. It, there's nothing clear there. There's no silver bullet there. That's for sure. Absolutely. And speaking about no silver bullet, you know, I think these processes themselves are just a a mechanism for us to communicate some concepts and come together and get past some collaborative dysfunction and and get to some forward momentum on a way of working together, a way of thinking about challenges, and certainly should be scrutinized themselves from time to time. Mm -hmm. And in our pre-show chat, you were mentioning that you've noticed a little bit more scrutiny or maybe a, a sense of challenge around design thinking, design sprints, design as a discipline where folks are pointing out that there's some considerations we need to make. Yeah, I think that's part of maybe it's the, uh, the cycle of maturity of, of these practices in this modern context uh, and the challenges that they face. Because when you take this kind of magic, if you will, and you put it into real-world situations, uh, I, there's a few articles I've seen recently about how uh, you know there's been challenges and issues around uh, – economic disparity, racial disparities, you know, the lack of diversity being expressed as a part of the practice and the and the people driving this stuff. And I think all those all those critiques are are super you know valid in terms of expressing the challenges of our time in the use of of design as a process. So I I I'm one of these optimists from that from the standpoint I think it's an eternal thing, but we have to always tune and, and and challenge ourselves to make sure that our uh, our work is in tune with the times. And some of those effects might be fleeting, but some of those things we need to be aware that they're more lasting and we have to invest in those. So um, I don't I don't know how we how we make that work as a part of the overall practice, but there's always a knife edge there. You know, people can sell design as the shiny thing that people just need to have for all of its perceived virtues, but there's 
there are um, there are challenges to actually having it fulfill and express that essence of that solution that I think ultimately test whether it's going to work or not in whatever the setting that it's in. You know, it makes me think of a couple of things. One is, you know, these startups that are just going to, they just want to hire the UX designer and they're going to sprinkle some design pixie dust and everything is going to be awesome. If we don't make it part of strategy and we don't invest in it and we don't change the fabric of the way that we think and the way we work is not going to have an impact. And so just a, it's almost like tokenism, right? <laughs> you know, maybe the impacts are not as severe, but, you know, it's the same as like, oh, let's just throw some design at that versus really making design part of the DNA of the company. And I think that's really similar to this other issue, which is if we are going to really invest in design strategy, and bring forth solutions for diverse community and support everyone that might use this product or the service. We need to make sure we're informed. And ideally, part of the design team is going to be representative of the people that are going to use it. And I've got a great story from a, a conference that I attended called Culturati. A plug for Culturati, great, great conference. Anyone that's interested in diversity, equity, inclusion, or anything HR and culture related, how we can design better experiences for our employees. Great, great conference. But I was at a panel with the head of diversity from Target and the head of diversity from Twitter. And they were both staying at a hotel here in Austin called South Congress Hotel. And they were pointing out how the shower was racially insensitive. And, you know, it was very hilarious because they're very funny people. And just the idea that this inanimate object could be racially insensitive. But it's, it's not the object's fault. It's the person that designed it, which kind of harkens back to the design of everyday things, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, you know, her point was like, clearly there were no African-American people on the design team or they weren't consulted, certainly, because this thing was uh, not very friendly to people who can't get their hair wet frequently. And so a really funny, an unfortunate story, but it really gets back to this card deck that I wanted to bring up when you mentioned this in our pre-show chat. I just had Leslie Ann Noel on the show recently. She's got this awesome card deck called the Designer's Critical Alphabet. And there's two cards in here that I think are really applicable here. One is the critical race theory. And the suggestion on this card is, what if you had someone from a different race or background design or redesign this product or service? How would it be different? So ideally, we're including them. But at the very least, we need to step back and use that as a heuristic. What would be different if they designed it? And if we are drawing blanks, if we think it would not be different at all, then we probably need to do more research. Mm -hmm. Because it means we don't know. Um, and in fact, we should probably be doing more research and including people regardless. And then assimilation is the the pattern or trend of the majority basically engulfing the minority. So the cultures of the minority tend to fade in support of adopting the cultures of the majority. And I think that is something designers should fight against to make sure we preserve the beauty of the minorities and um, so I don't necessarily think it's the process, the, the scaffolding, but how it gets used. And I think the scaffolding is the really easy thing to attack, right? But as you know, if someone's walking around with a hammer trying to hammer screws, it's the person that's wielding the hammer, not the hammer's fault. 
And so I think that it's really important that we step back and look at how we're using these tools and not attack the tools. And, and we might need to adapt, adopt the tools as well. So anyway, I, I just wanted to share that because I had a lovely conversation with her about a month ago and would love to hear your thoughts on that, Jim, because I know you've spent years in the design industry, have worked with a lot of different people across a lot of different sectors and problems. How's this kind of surface for you? And do you have any advice for listeners around how we approach that? Well, as, as that as a topic, I think um, I, I'm actually fascinated by that deck. I, I want to I check that out uh, and learn some more about that. Because was that re- what that reminds me of is um, going back to my education, there, I had an opportunity to be in a workshop with um, Christopher Alexander's firm. And so you may know Christopher Alexander wrote A Pattern Language, among other things. Um, and there's actually a great YouTube video of him speaking to the Object-Oriented Programming Association or uh, group in San Francisco in 1996. So the whole idea – so I've been a pattern person in terms of the – you know that, that made a huge impact on me. And, and the idea of these patterns, number one, they, they try to express the essence of something. They're universally transferable and applicable to a degree. They need to be adapted, of course, for local conditions. But – this whole idea that there's higher levels of understanding that are portable and transportable, I think it seems as, as though there would be architectural patterns. You know, there are social and cultural patterns. And I think that's where maybe this, this concept of developing this, this vocabulary, this shared understanding of, of tuning into the times that we're in and having having modes of communication and methods that we apply that will give people, hopefully, a, an ability to sense those things and to be, how do I how do I not be insensitive and how do I be sensitive to the needs of the, the group I'm working with or whatever it is they're, they're requiring? So I think that's one thing that occurs to me. I think we need more structures like that, that, that are shared very easily and communicated universally across the design professions. And uh, so whether that's these, you know, these decks of insights and, and issues that we need to be attuned to, but then how do we take that and, and form them into things that then can become applied as a, as a integrated whole in dealing with whatever problem is we're trying to solve. And I guess the other thing that makes me think about is there's Oftentimes, and this is getting back to my landscape architecture education, we often felt maybe it's sort of professional ego, but this idea that we had to learn about the whole landscape and the functions of the entire landscape. And we had to kind of put them all together and see what that meant as far as the relationships across those systems. And then that would that would inform us how we would be best advised to consider changes to that landscape. And it was always contrasted, and this is from my architectural professors, they always contrasted that with their profession saying, we're just worried about this this box, right? We're just going to design this box. So I, I wonder how much of that idea of design that is disconnected from the environment can perpetuate itself. And so you end up with a showerhead like that, that is disconnected from the broader public. It might look cool. It might've shown up as some kind of, you know, five-star rating of, of some hotel. And everybody thought that rain shower was the coolest thing. Well, yeah, who, who, who wrote that, that, that thing? Those become social dynamics that become popular and then fads, if you will. And then, People making choices will pick them maybe not based upon 
the problem they're trying to solve or the people they're trying to serve, but for other reasons that are disconnected. So I think I think we need some more of these patterns to help keep that connection and uh, give people pause to think about, you know, what is it I'm really doing here and who am I really trying to serve? Wow, that that seems like a really interesting field of study or or at least the blog post, you know, this this notion, this difference between designing for the ecosystem and then designing in the box. And, I, you know, that's, it's interesting. In the world of software, we think about abstraction boundaries. And we create these abstraction boundaries so we can think about the box that we're in. And the abstraction boundary creates, I would say, interface points, right? They're signatures. It's almost like, you know, if you think about antibodies or other kind of chemistry kinds of metaphors where it's like, oh, this, this molecule can connect to this molecule because the key matches the, the, the receptor or whatever. And so in software, we create similar abstraction boundaries where this thing, you, I know if I build this thing, it'll connect to this other thing. So I kind of know the context that I'm in. And so as long as I adhere to those rules, I can make this thing work however I want it to work. But I think if we take that thinking to something more dynamic, more complex, like the human condition or just the, the world, like where we're in an ecosystem, I don't think it's quite so simple. I don't think we have those abstraction boundaries that are really cut and dry with these very well-defined signatures that we can kind of connect into. And I think that understanding the context you're in and adapting your practices accordingly is is really critical. So I love that you got my gears turning there, Jim. Well, you know, these are things that are, they're going to be perpetual pursuits, right? We're not we're never going to have the day when we, we've solved this problem or this challenge because every day is different. People are different uh, in terms of their dynamics, their challenges. I mean, just consider what we've been through in the pandemic. You know, what kinds of influences has that had on so many things? And that's a that's a double challenge because, or maybe it's less of a challenge because we've all been through it, right? To a different degree, some unimaginable in terms of the pain and, and agony that have been caused, but others, you know, it's just, I, I wonder about, what what are the potential good things that have come out of this challenging experience that everyone's been through? And, um, you know, has that created some shared understanding and make people more uh, more open to others, even though we've been in all this isolation for multiple months? You know, I've found that to be true. I, I think I've increased my potential for empathy and true willingness to open up to what other people are really going through, just trying to imagine it and, and uh, whether or not I can relate to it. And I think that has a definite impact on everything that we're doing from a day-to-day basis now. So uh, yeah, the, the, more, the more that these processes can inform and be tuned to the realities that we're all in and build structures and practices and processes to give people a way to connect and share a deeper understanding. We've we've got to we've got to we've got to grab those things and try to preserve them. Awesome. Well, I think that brings us to a very natural stopping point. So I want to invite you, Jim, to leave our listeners with a final thought. Anything you'd like them to keep in mind as they reflect on this episode? Well, I guess as someone who's been doing this a long time, uh, it's and I actually I was this is one of my other lessons from school. You know, the sense of you you you. For those people that may be just getting their degree, 
I don't I don't know what the general consensus is out of design schools this day, these days are, are is to to advise young people going into the profession. But I was told before I graduated that number one, I had actually taken uh, an oath of poverty and didn't realize it. But um, my my professional commitment was going to lead me through a long period of learning, and it wasn't going to be until I reached I would call it past middle age. I'll put it that way that all of it was going to come together. And whether it has or not, I don't know. But there is something to be said about a, pursuing a career and your life journey and do it as, with as much adventure and diversity as you can if you're a designer, because it's only going to add to your ability to grow that capacity into the future. So I I, I was given that guidance early on, and is it has proven true to me. So I think that's what's interesting to be able to for what all the work that you do and all the range of people you you work with from students to new new people new design to advanced professionals I mean this is this is a, a lifelong commitment that's what's very fulfilling about it and uh, there's challenges to it along the way but uh, what I've found is so rewarding is all the cycles of my prof- of my career that I've gone through you know this is the one the one thing that's I've been able to maintain as a as a way to kind of keep my orientation about where my profession professional endeavors and my personal creative you know goals are. So it's that's one of the positives about it. You know, this is it can be frustrating, but um, whatever whatever entry point anyone's had into considering design, um, it considered as a lifelong practice. Jim, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. I really enjoyed the chat and looking forward to talking to you soon. Douglas, thanks so much. Appreciate the opportunity. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com.